Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Helps to turn on the microphones. Hello, everyone. That's okay. So on an episode that's about <laughs> the importance of sound. <laughs> right? Uh, do we need to introduce ourselves again? I, we probably we probably should. Why don't Why well, don't I'm you? Do that? I've got I've got Mrs. Boss yelling yelling at me. So I I yes. Let me let me. Okay, there she goes. It's been one of those days. I okay. Oh, I so, so over the weekend, I, and you and I talked about this. About okay. So, so let's do this for let's do this for real. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the H Two O podcast. My name is Jason Hunt, and I am Timothy Harvey. Okay, so now we can actually get on with this. Uh, okay, so over the weekend, as we're doing prep for Good Morning Multiverse, uh, it is. Uh, it comes to my attention that I've got an interview that I did that we recorded back in October that apparently never made it on the air. And I don't know exactly why. Um, I, I do know that the file was such that his, uh, we interviewed Duncan Swan and his audio was so low. I knew I was going to have to do a, a mix on it. And apparently never got around to it. And I don't know what happened, but I dropped the ball. So that ran today. Um, and and Duncan's fine with it. We've communicated since then. And uh, he, he says, you know, it's all good. Um, and and he, he seemed to recall that there was something, uh, there was something that happened then that I had a last-minute schedule change during the week or some, something happened. And I ended up not not running the show, and I I completely dropped the ball, and I felt so bad about it. I beat myself up over the over the entire weekend. So um, so there was that today, and now we've got. I mean, it wouldn't be a show without at least one button not being pushed properly, right? Right. So, and I would rather. If, if we're talking about pushing buttons, I would rather be dealing with the buttons on the board rather than pushing each other's buttons. So, you know, there's always that. Right, right, so, sure. And hello, Mazerus, in the chat. Uh, it, is, uh, it is good to see you, although uh, we hope you're feeling better soon. Uh, that does not sound like a very pleasant experience you're going through. And uh, Yeah, definitely uh, feel better. Yes. we uh, Hopefully all goes well. Speedy recovery. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, okay, so he says, please don't let me derail this this stream with my unpleasantness, musical musings. And yes, that's what we are doing. We are talking about music tonight, um, something we don't discuss very often. And it's, you know, we talk about the importance of story a lot. We talk about character development. We talk about, you know, the redemption arc and all of these different things that make it important, you know, make that are important to an effective story, an entertaining story. But there are other pieces of that. And as I'm going through here thinking, you know, we talk about 
you know, tonight we're going to talk about the importance of the music, but that actually might uh, open up a few different aspects of storytelling, especially when it comes to television and film production, that augment and accent the story. You know, we can look at what kind of effect cinematography has and the editing sure. and all of those things and the well, sound. Not only, just, not only just music, but sound design. Because yeah. some films really lean into the concept of sound and that, and like I said, outside of the score being part of what's setting the mood in a very distinct way. And I'm not, and yes, of course, every film, you know, your special effects or your, whatever your, your Foley, all the, the various noises that they put in after the fact, but some, some films and TV shows too, really lean into the idea of communicating part of the story through the sound design. So that's something we should probably circle back around to well, because you've got, that's a fairly deep dive into some yeah. of these things. Well, you've also got the other part of that where you have things like production design or uh, uh, what's you know, visual effects probably add to it depending on the piece and having done a little bit myself with all of that, I, I know that there are times the visual effects are not necessarily the rock'em sock'em robots and the explosions and the flying people. Right, right. Uh, I did a thing where I had a, I had a romantic comedy and it's not a place where you're going to expect to find special effects, but I had to do a shot. I, I needed an establishing shot of an exterior of a building and I needed it to match other things that I had shot. And the weather was completely different. We were shooting it now in this pickup shot in March. And the trees are bare. You know, nothing's come back mm -hmm. yet. So I ended up getting a couple of little railroad model trees and sticking them on dowel rods and driving, mm -hmm. them, into the, driving them into the ground. And those became my foreground. I, I became my own miniature unit. So we have sure. it's a romantic comedy with a miniature unit. I was like, well, you know, this is a visual effect. So, right. you know. But well, and you can you consider some folks uh, really, there's the, the modern tendency, of course, to do digital effects because, of course, it opens up you know, vast realms of possibility to be able to create the world as you want it. Yeah. But then you have something like uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, where the idea was to use practical effects, many of them, or the vast majority of them, the idea was that they would use the effect that was actually available to film producers a hundred years before the film was made. Mm. And so it's, um, you know, there's, there's, certainly ways you can look at telling stories with effects that are not the obvious and here's where we put the monster and yeah. here's where we put you know here's here's where the alien was and and of course the argument that you can make and people will make it very strongly that practical effects have more impact on the screen um you look at something like um you know the thing one of the great classics of modern horror and then you look at the prequel, The Thing, which is not a bad movie. I, I, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. 
but they shot it with practical effects and in post replaced it all with digital effects. And it loses that sense that you get from the original, you know, Carpenter film, which of course practical effects are what they had to use. Yeah. Because there was no digital, you know, digital effects as we think of them now just didn't exist. And there's an immediacy and a power to those effects that you don't get with digital and nothing wrong with digital. Like I said, I mean, it, you know, enables you to do amazing things, but you know, there's, there's all kinds of fun things we could talk about when it comes to the production side of thing and how it impacts a story. That, that might, a film. that might be a good idea for a series of conversations about that. We may have to, we may have to look into that. And uh, Mazers, no, I, I'm not a, a closet model railroader. Um, I he's just, out in the open. It's everywhere just, in the basement. You just well, don't see it in the shots, folks. The entire place is up. No. We have now. I I will admit that you know, my dad is a big railroad train. You know, is a big train. My father guy. was for a while, and uh, so he you know, I it's it's in the back, you know, because my dad's a big a big railroad guy, and you know, growing up, my son you know loved to hear trains and and you know train whistles and bells and that sort of thing, and and uh, we have quite a bit of Thomas the tank engine paraphernalia still here in the house. Um, Well, I mean, I say here in the house, it's in a box, but you know, that stuff has value. And I've got a, I've got a Percy that has an unfinished paint job still minted the box. And I, I was like, this could be this this could be worth something someday. You don't get to open this one, you know. So, um, so all the stripes are missing. It's just the base oh, coat. Okay. It's just the ba- the green base coat. But you know, having having seen, I really the idea for the trees came from Star Trek Two, because when they're walking through, uh, right after the Kobayashi Maru scene. And they're in that corridor. They're in that lobby area, and and Spock gives him the book. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff in the front is a miniature. It's forced perspective miniature right. in that room, and that's what gave me the idea. Well, I stick a couple of trees right here in front, and you know I've got my forced perspective, and it's summer again. So that was where that was. Uh, Mazur says the inherent problem with CGI effects, they do age quickly, age by the newer and newer technologies getting better and better. I would also add on that, Mm. that I think that one of the reasons why visual effects don't age as well as they could have is because there's not necessarily the uncanny valley aspect of it, but some... Some visual effects are too clean, too sharp, too right. rendered. They're overbaked. And as you get further and further out, and as CG starts to dirty itself up again in order to look more realistic and blend better, then some of that older stuff looks a little bit more sharply contrasted to the stuff that's actually there in camera. So. Yeah, we'll have to definitely talk about that because tonight we're talking about music. <clears throat> right, but before yeah. we do that, let's uh, the, the perfect example of that is the first Jurassic Park. Yeah. 
the effects still hold up because one of the things that they did was that they made sure there were no crisp lines around the edges of these things. And so there's a sense of uh, three-dimensionality mm -hmm. uh, that goes to those images that uh, you can lose with the CGI. Um, that just, you know, I mean, it, it might look amazing and wonderful, but it just doesn't have that sense of being in the actual space. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's fascinating. And I've, I've run into this in, in, in my own work with green screens, um, especially with Photoshop. It's easier to do. But um, just going around, once I get everything placed and the green screen is, is out and you've got whatever background in and all of that, one of the last things that I do is take a little blur tool and go all the way around the edge of whatever's been cut out and, sure. and you know, just kind of blend it a little bit better. It makes a huge difference. It's a little thing, but it mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. Uh, good right. to see Sci-Fi Snob in the chat. Superman 78. Welcome. Yeah, I think I think maybe we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll revisit this. CGI effect. I'm just going to make myself a note here because we've talked about topics and I don't write it down. And then we forget and then what we were going to talk about. All right, so music. Superman 78, I guess that's a good place to start because that is uh, one of one of the ones that I've got here on my on my pile. Uh, and John Williams, I guess with Star Wars especially, uh, but then with close encounters and jaws and that and that set and Superman. John Williams really had an impact in changing oh, yeah. how movies were scored again. Because up until Star Wars, George Lucas was sitting there going, I, I want Waxman and Korngold and, you know, that that style, Wagner and that and that tone for Star Wars. As a, because back in the 70s, everybody was doing pop music and, and you know, it wasn't the full orchestra symphonic sound at the time. I mean, they'd done it in the 30s and the 40s and the big sweeping musics and whatever. You know, Franz, Franz Voxman was a was a big one there. Uh, Korngold, Eric Korngold was another one. Have you ever listened to the soundtrack for the Blue Max? Yeah. Excellent score. And for, an, for a long time, it was funny, for a long time, I had, there's one particular track on that soundtrack that sometimes run through my head whenever I was getting on a plane, whenever we were taking off, I'd hear, I'd hear the Blue Max in my head. I'm like, where'd that come from? But it's an excellent <laughs> score. Uh, but yeah, when, when Star Wars hit, it was a, a game changer in terms of let's make music mean something. Let's add another layer to the story using the music. And John Williams was very good about that. Jerry Goldsmith, as well, and uh, and Jane, uh, is it James Goldsmith? Joel Joel Goldsmith, who's done a lot of scores for things like Stargate and you know a lot of television stuff. Um, he's another one. I think that's Jerry. Is that Jerry? Son? Jerry Jerry Goldsmith. No Jerry. There's Jerry. Nope. Wait. Wait. You're and right. there's you're Joel. Right. Joel has is. I want to say that Joel was Jerry's son, not brother. But I might have that wrong. Uh, it's it's Joel. Yeah, is Joel Jerry's son or he Jerry's brother? Is because I can't remember one way or the other. There. The son, yes. Okay, uh -huh. this is son. All right. 
So Joel Joel has done a lot in television. Uh, he's done well, he's, he's done, done film, film score. He did, he did first contact. He did a Star, a Star Trek first contact score. Yeah. So, but I know him. I know him from his his work on Stargate more than anything else. Well, and and the Rocky score. That's Bill Cosby. A, uh, I'm sorry. Which, which um, Rocky? No, I'm sorry. He did. Uh, he didn't do Rocky. He did the parody. He did the parody film. Um, oh, what's it called? I don't know. Called Ricky. I've never heard of that. <laughs> I've never heard of that one. I, I don't know anything about it. All I know is I remember seeing it and going, yeah. there was a Rocky parody? I thought there, I thought been parodied all over the place, but uh, nonetheless. Yeah. You know, yeah, he did a ton of Stargate stuff, yeah. which, you know, for when you think about it, um, it has a very lush sound for a TV show. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things I've been noticing about the show Debris, which has a very tangerine f- uh, dream kind of feel to the score. It feels, it almost feels like they've been inspired many ways by the um, Blade Runner soundtrack. Mm. Or and, and it's got a very distinct sound because of that. You don't expect to hear that on television. Yeah. Uh, because it has, it's something that's sort of built into your head that this is a movie sound, and it's a particular kind of sound. You know, you get it from you get it from a, a 1980s or 1970s science fiction film, where someone's being very experimental, and and to have that on a on a network television show, you know, just again adds to the to the tone and the feel of the show and makes it feel a little bit otherworldly because it's not what you would expect for a TV score, mm-hmm. but for the the grandness that you get even on a TV budget of traveling to other worlds through this, through this portal, this, you know, that the themes and, and the, the richness of, of the Stargate scores actually is pretty impressive. Well, not uh, only that, but having to take, having to take the original themes from the movie and modify and then build on that throughout however many, you know, what, 10 seasons plus two movies mm-hmm. and just just building piece after piece after piece and gradually getting away from, I mean, you still have the main theme which followed a different rhythmic pattern in the TV show than it did in the movie, but you know, everything else around that score throughout the 10 seasons started to evolve in various different ways. So it was distinct from the movie and you could tell this is, this is the movie. This is the, the TV score, not the movie score. Um, Mazars mentions, we, we talked about John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Mazars mentions Jerry Horner, uh, James Horner as well. Uh, I did not know he was Jerry Goldsmith's son-in-law. That's, that's new. I didn't, I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, James Horner did Titanic. He did Star Trek Two. He kind of did Aliens. <clears throat> and there's a story there. That's actually, uh, that's where James Cameron and James Horner had a falling out uh, for a number of years. They did not work together uh, until Titanic. And reason for that is because the the mo- Aliens was. Do we say a mess? Aliens was in a rush. The editing, you know, the post-production, there were issues. And 
James Horner had a full score done. He wrote he wrote a he wrote an aliens score. I wonder if that's anywhere that anybody could find. Because they never recorded it because they ran out of time. And so what ended up happening is that James Cameron ended up cribbing a lot of cuts from the Star Trek II score. So when you're at the end, and this is where I noticed it more than anything else, there's at the end when um, the whole place is blowing up and Ripley's on the, on the platform and the ship is gone and you hear the Klingon theme right there in the middle, the bird of prey theme from Star Trek three. And I'm like, or, or yeah, it was, yeah. Cause it pulled from Star Trek three as well. And I thought, wait a minute, hang on. What is going on here? And it turns out that Cameron had pulled a bunch of mu- musical cuts from other scores that Horner did. And James Horner was not happy about that. To make matters worse, he was nominated for Academy Award. I, right? I mean, it's like, oh, that's got to be in, adding insult to injury. But he, they just they just flat ran out of time. Right. But I would be curious now to to I would I wonder if any of it ever got recorded. And if it didn't, there's got you know, because we know that he wrote something. I would be interested to see if anybody still has though that that manuscript that maybe maybe it gets recorded at some point. That'd be really interesting. That would be kind of cool. Well, and, and you look at, you consider that some of these scores have become really just iconic sounds, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you hear something like, uh, you know, the Star Wars score, you know what that means. It, it, it inspires a certain emotion in you. And that's been, you know, we've been, it's been programmed into us for decades after decade after decade. So much so that, you know, if you, if you want to really watch people come apart uh, watch a reaction scene to uh, a certain scene. I'm going to keep spoilers light for the folks who may not have caught up. Uh, a certain scene at the end of the season of The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. where you know, if you watch a reaction video, you can watch grown people burst into tears. Yeah, and it's the power of the music on top of the visuals. And there's this certain things that, you know, and, and you and I back when, when um, the force awakens, the first trailer came out mm-hmm. yep. and how well crafted that trailer is. And you and I sat there and went, Oh wow. Cause it hits you yes. at just a certain point. And that's this em- emotional upbeat thing. And then there's the flip side of that, which is how many people still afraid to go into water because the back of their mind, they're oh, hearing. And you hear those noises. In fact, you hear anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've got that sort of, I'm on dry land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a knock at the door and it's a land shark and you just don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, Um, 
Now, Mazur uh, says the Klingon theme originally written by Goldsmith for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and it was reused. Actually, there are two. There are two versions of that. Goldsmith has his version. Uh, that's in that opening scene in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, where where those three Klingon ships meet V'ger, and that Goldsmith brings back in Star Trek V. But in Star Trek Three, James Horner's Klingon music is distinctly different. It's it's that same kind of tone, and this is where you get into, you know, one of the one of the things where you get different interpretations from different composers for the same group of people, group of characters, and you know the the Klingon theme in the in the first movie is you know battle and noble you know there's a little bit of of nobility to it it's it's you know very martial sounding and and it's it's slower ish than what you get from horner with his klingon theme his klingon theme is a lot more active you know there's a lot more movement in it but it's similar you could blend the two very easily so they they live together and and it's you know very very close cousins, I guess you could say. And then when you get into things like, you know, Star Trek, First Contact, any of the later movies, now you get to pull from all of these different themes and, and such because all of it started showing up in Next Generation episodes and movies later. And it's really interesting to, to hear different composers take on the same subject matter. Because Star Trek VI, for example, you know, you have, uh, um, oh, who did the theme for, who did the, the music for Star Trek VI? It was some new guy, uh, Elliot Goldenthal. And he's got to deal with Klingon music in his, and it's a lot different than mm -hmm. what you get from the other two. And, um, and then you have somebody like Leonard Rosenman, who does Star Trek Four, which is very different in tone from everything else because of the time travel aspects and the comedy right. and all of that. But I, I, I remember running across another Rosenman score, and I want to say it was the Andromeda Strain, but don't hold me to that. I could be wrong. And I hear certain little bits and pieces that sound familiar signatures thematic you know uh, particular rhythms james horner did it a lot he 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 because you listen sure. to you listen to star trek 2 and star trek 3 well star trek 2 more than the others but star trek 2 the rocketeer <laughs> i was like I remember because when I first saw the Rocketeer, before I ever before I ever saw anything on there that it says James Horner, I knew it was James Horner because, oh that da 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 that that's from Star Trek too. I bet James Horner did this score, and sure enough, there he is. Alan Silvestri is another one of those where he has specific things that he uses over and mm -hmm. over and over again and and it's these little these little bits and pieces and you can hear generally you can tell a john williams score 
more often than not. Oh, yeah. So, well, and, you know, for on the horror side, you can find it, especially with somebody like like John Carpenter, yeah, who often will compose the music for his horror films himself. And of course, he's got lots of albums out. If you happen to be a fan of Carpenter's sound movie soundtracks and you want to pick out his actual albums, but he's got. I mean, if you you get, and it's, of course, it's it's a sort of stripped down you know, synthesizer, electronica kind of thing, uh, very keyboard based, but it's very iconic. I mean, you think of the, again, um, you know, if you hear just a few notes from the Halloween th- theme, yeah, you know what, you know, the, there's a mood that's like, is there someone standing behind me with a large knife? Psycho. You know? Oh yeah. Well, and, yeah. and, and you look at some of these things that they become almost, um, Shorthand. We talk. We've talked about visual shorthand quite a bit uh, in, in in storytelling and things like that. When you get into to filmmaking, um, but there's a lot of music that's become shorthand. The Psycho score, the few a few bars from 2001. Oh yeah, you know, taking these well, classical pieces, but but you but even though these classical pieces have existed long before the film industry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you hear that you you hear the opening. Sc- bits just yeah, to, to also sprags out of Thustra. And you're thinking, you know, space movie. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a classical piece, it's been around for 300 <laughs> years. Well, yeah, uh, uh also Sprags Zarathustra and Blue Danube both are those two pieces where as soon as you hear it, you're either looking you're either seeing the monolith in your head or you're seeing the space station in your head, depending on mm-hmm. on which one you're doing. I see uh, uh, Geekosity Magazine, uh, Mikey Sutton there in the chat. Welcome, sir. I have not Welcome. seen you in here before. It's good to, good to have you here. He points out Hans Zimmer. Uh, he says, fun lore. Michael Douglas went up to Hans Zimmer and says, I was so coked out on Black Rain, your score saved me. It didn't save the movie. <laughs> good score, <laughs> but it's not a great movie. Well, and that's one of the things that bothers me, I think, about um, about some of his stuff with the superhero uh, themes is that there's really not as much of a theme. Um, something that I've noticed a long time ago with regard to say Superman, if you look at, or you listen to John Williams, Superman theme, the Superman March. And then if you go to the animated series that, came after and you go all the way back to the Fleischer animated and you go to the George Reeves, you go all of these different, all of these different iterations of Superman. Almost every one of them, not, not all of them, but almost all of them have some kind of a three beat signature and it's rhythmically, it's almost identical in all of them. The animated one flips it, but the rest of them, you have this da da da, and all of them do it. You know, the Fleischer, you da da da, da da da, you know, that. And every single one of them, the George Reeves theme is slower. But it still has that three-note signature. And so it's it's almost like you expect something like that for Superman. And 
the Man of Steel score doesn't have it. Well, so the Man of Steel score is a little, is a little contradictory because, and hopefully they're not going to tag us on this because, you know, <laughs> music. No. But, you know, un- underneath the Man of Steel score, you've got dun 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 yeah but then you've got da 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 so yeah, you end up with this sort of this sort of and and i i think it's i actually quite like a lot of the music from the snyder verse but i like them as musical pieces mm-hmm and and I think because I think they're well crafted, and I think there's they evoke a mood. A mood. There's um, there was somebody who, and this was years ago. Obviously, it was, it was shortly after Man of Steel had come out, and they had taken all the different versions of the theme throughout the film, and they'd put them back to back, and so you could sit there and listen to it. It was like twenty minutes of, of variations on that theme, yeah. and I was like, this is really pretty cool listening to because you get to it's. It's like listening to, you know, you're moving through a series of movements in a composition, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, a, it, it was really rather interesting to listen to. But in some of the way that I don't necessarily think that, that Zack Snyder necessarily gets these characters. Yeah. And, 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 and that, and again, people are going to disagree with that. But I think in some ways the score... While I can sit there and say, I think uh, uh, Henry Cable does a fine job, and I think, you know, these this actor and this actor, and they do these things, and this is a cool sequence. Um, you know, we have not been shy about our less than, you know, the Snyderverse is fine. Yeah. But. And now with all this shake up at AT&T who knows what happens next uh, it's know? a multiverse if it comes back <laughs> it comes back but i just you know i'm <clears throat> i'm uh, to be honest i'm more interested in seeing matt reeves batman just because i'm see, you know in what little we've seen so far i'm like there's some stuff i haven't seen before and therefore i kind of want to see what they do will it turn out to be good fingers crossed will yeah. it turn out to be bad I'm I'm curious mainly because uh, in interviews uh, Reeves has has said that they're leaning into the Batman as a detective. Yeah, bit. which is something and we I'm, don't we don't see. We haven't seen often. at all. Well, we haven't seen in the movies very much. Well, not in the movies. No, we see a little bit, a little bit in the in the animated series, but not as much. Yeah. That's that's, uh, and I think that um, I'm intrigued by that notion. I am too. Uh, there's there's something to be said to trying to give this, um, and I, I hesitate to use the phrase more grounded, mm-hmm. uh, because what does that mean in a superhero <laughs> movie? Um, but at the same time, the idea of, of going into the detective aspect early in the day, so he doesn't have all the cool, all the cool toys. Yeah, um, you know the, that that in, that to me. Um, you know, however you feel about Frank Miller, his Batman Year One was interesting because it felt new. Yeah. Even though it was something that was, you know, decades after the the events were first, you know, when was the year the real Year One, nineteen thirty, you know, whatever. Um, so, right. uh, 
that that intrigues me. Yeah. One of the things I was looking at um, that I came across, and I, 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 over on foreign bodies, we talk about foreign film and soundtracks. We talked about Suspiria uh, several episodes back uh, when uh, uh, we were over in Italy. Well, we were talking about Italian films. We weren't over in Italy. I would love to be over in Italy. I've never been. It seems like a lovely place to visit, and there's so much history. But you have films like you have there's there's the classic Suspiria, and then you have the modern Suspiria. And you look at the differences in the soundtrack, and the band Goblin, which was very much uh, all over uh, Dario Argento, I think some some Fulci as well. Um, and they're a, a prog rock band. And there are times, as much as I like their music, it doesn't really seem to fit the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like they're making their own music over here. And then here's a horror movie going on over here. <laughs> and then they kind of lie on top of each other. Yeah. It oh, by the way. Not, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're not enjoyable scores, but it's kind of like, what an interesting choice. Mm. And then you have Tom York's um, Suspiria score, which I really like. And of course, he's uh, you know the, the front man and primary writer of Radiohead, so he's got a lot of experience with you know. And but you wouldn't necessarily think Radiohead and horror film score, yeah. But it's really it's a really effective score, and I really like it. If you haven't seen the modern, the the more recent Suspiria, it's an interesting take without being a remake exactly. Uh, in fact, we just our most recent episode of of Foreign Bodies. We had a couple of films with the Queen of Black Magic, which is in fact two films with the same title from the same studio. One of them's not really a remake of the other one, but it kind of is. So, I mean, it's interesting to see that in music, yeah, because you can hear echoes in in York's score, but it's not a remake of Goblin's score. And then you have something like. Ravenous, which is a film, I, 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 this comes up periodically. Ravenous is a criminally underseen vampire cannibal Western expansionist ho- horror movie. It doesn't seem like it should work, but it does. Robert Carlyle, Guy Pierce, it's a fantastic movie, but the score is so odd. And you're listening to the first like 30 minutes of the film and you're like, why did they choose to, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. And yet you get to the last 30 minutes and you're like, oh yeah, this score has been perfect the entire time. (laughs) Because they really kind of, it's a score that is oddly upbeat for this movie. Yeah. And then you start to realize as the film goes along how much there's a lot of, there's this strain of dark comedy that runs through this. And then you end up with like, okay, this is meant to keep you off balance and to be the tone is supposed to be off. Mm-hmm. This is right. a conscious decision. So by the time you get to certain scenes in the film, spoilers, because I'm, there's a very good chance you haven't seen this film, folks, because I don't know why people... Well, I know why people didn't see it. Uh, we've talked about really, really terrible trailer campaigns before. Oh, yeah. Ravenous's trailer campaign was awful. <laughs> I mean, it was just horrid. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a score that is very strange and very off-putting initially. 
Um, and yet by the time it's done, you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is perfect. Um, and it, you know, it, cause it's a film about a lot of different things. And so the score ends up being a lot about a lot of different things. Um, uh, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird combination. Um, Robert, I don't know. Have you seen Ravenous? Is it, um, is it, does it have steampunk stylings? I don't think it, it is has. not steampunk styling. So, okay. so the briefest, the briefest premise here for folks who haven't seen it, Guy Pierce plays a guy during, I want to say it's the Spanish American war. And, uh, he survives a vicious battle, uh, and apparent and by basically playing dead and then capturing the uh, opposing, uh, commander, mm. everybody knows he's a coward. And so instead of, but, but he's a hero. And so they kick, they, they promote him to a distant fort in California uh, and say, go away. And it's basically the, the fort where they send everybody who's just, you know, they don't have any use for them. Dentals. Um, and then one day Robert Carlyle stumbles in to the camp telling a story about a wagon train heading west to get caught in the snow in a pass and oh dear cannibalism <laughs> oh no you have to come you have to come help me rescue the people who are still behind and if you've ever seen robert carlisle in anything watch that man smile yeah it's the smile of a wolf and um and then things get crazy from there it's a fantastic cast uh, and it's one of those movies that, again, if you haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. It's a it's a really well crafted horror movie. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should do a list. Uh, well, haven't haven't we done an uh, haven't we done an episode of uh, movies you should have seen but probably haven't? Had, had, I think I think we've had one in a back white way back. I was thinking we maybe we have. More. Right, we um, yeah, Robert, it is it is Donner Party adjacent in a. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yes and no. Oh, he did see it. Yes, yes and no. Okay, yeah. So yeah. It's, I, it's again, it's it's yeah. one of those one of those movies that if you you know, well, and and Robert, you, talk you about and I, the, uh, and probably about uh, anybody who saw it on video, but maybe people did not people. see it in the theater. See, well, and and you talk about you know music that uh, a score that was that seemed to be disjointed from the the subject matter the 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 film the the show that it's part of um the battlestar galactica reboot from ronald d moore Mm. um that one i i get what they were doing with it i didn't like it i didn't like the theme because it was too it was too ethereal. I was for, like, for no. such a gritty F- show. Yeah, it was effervescence, and I was like, no, no, that no, what, no. And the only time we heard any element of the original theme was in the was in the the miniseries that served as the pilot, where you have that that ceremony at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see the old Cylon Raiders and you see the old Cylon Centurions that are all there in that museum, that display, where the Galactica is going to become this display, right? This this museum piece. And the rest of the series, you have nothing that calls back to the original themes of the of the 78 series. 
And then they're quoting Bob Dylan at the end of this show. And okay. that well. completely, that, that did it for me. That just completely blew me out because there were two points in Battlestar Galactica where they lost me. The, the time jump when they're in the occupied camps We've jumped ahead, however, and now we're doing this. And I thought, this, okay. Nah, I didn't care for that. And then they start quoting Bob Dylan. And no, that completely, no. I, I was done. That. I was like, no, no, you've just completely blown my suspension of disbelief with that. Now, time is a circle and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you look at, you look at something like... Um, a show like, say, Doctor Who, mm -hmm. where you have the main theme, which actually does not play into any episode right. in terms of the score. Now, individual doctors ended up having their own themes. This became much more of a modern thing, where the doctor has a specific, whoever's playing the doctor has their particular theme. But, you know, or you look at something like Farscape, where mm -hmm. the this very rich, very uh, vocal-based mm -hmm. soundtrack where, and it, it adds to that sense of this alien experience because it's a, it's almost a, it's a very rich choral sound, but there's an element of discord to it, which makes it feel a little bit alien, which of course puts you in the, your, your point of view character is, is John Crichton. Of course, yeah. he's the human among aliens. Therefore, you it, know, that it, sound kind of works. It puts me in mind of, uh, the the alien opera singer that blew the blue alien opera singer in the in the fifth element. Sure, mm -hmm. I don't know why I think of I, I I juxtapose those two, but you know it's that in the it's early that, part of her song because because yeah. there's that comes to that point where it's like you know where it goes it turns into the to the fun I, bouncy number which I may, is a I may, lot of fun. I but. may clip that and put it into our promo at some point. As well, you should. Yeah. As well, you should. <laughs> Yeah, but it's yeah, it's it's those things where if it's done right, the music can set the tone for what you expect. You look at the original Star Trek, for example, you know, that series. Mm -hmm. It's a it's an action adventure and the 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 theme music takes us on an action adventure. You know, it it promises something exciting. Um and next generation when they re they repurposed Jerry Goldsmith's theme for Star Trek the Next Generation. But then you look at Deep Space Nine, for example, and that theme is much different in tone. Oh, sure. But at the same time, it, it almost makes me want to think about 2001 for some reason. It's that it's 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 there's a grandeur. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that you don't get in any of the rest of the series, any of the rest of the themes. There's something about that. And it's because you have, I think part of it is that show brings in the religious aspects of cultures. And you have sure. this overall thing of having to do with faith and destiny and you know, what happens with the Cisco being the emissary and all of these different things. And you're, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say many, many likes to, to call it a, a, 
a love boat because you're you're in the same place and you've got the same crew and you just have the guest stars show up every every week. Right, right, right. Sure. Okay, but it's also, maybe, but, but, but it's on it's on the edge of the exploration. Yeah. Right. It's on it's on the it's on the frontier. Beyond the wormhole is all of this place on this unexplored space. Yeah. And I think that 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 and the religious theme really play into that sense of of expansion and and mm-hmm. uh, grandeur that that's really there. Now, on Vo- the flip side of that, Voyager doesn't do that. No, no, which is a shame. There, Voyager, Voyager. It would be I I I think that there's a lot that you could do with that kind of story. That unfortunately, whether for whatever reasons, all the different reasons. Voyager just wasn't able to do that. But yeah. if you look at something like the Highlander score, well, first of all, if you look at the Queen album, <laughs> yeah. that is the Highlander score, or Flash Gordon. Okay, so these are, the, oh. in many, in some ways, these are not movie scores. No, they're not. They're soundtrack albums that happen to have been used in a movie um, but they, they are have so, score parts yeah but they are they so have. closely aligned when people think of that movie oh, they think of yeah. those those songs uh you know highlander there are people got who are still want to hear the full version of freddie mercury singing new york new york ah uh, yes that would be so because you only have this much yeah. and there is no actual queen Highlander soundtrack. There is an album called A Kind of Magic, which is essentially the Highlander soundtrack, mm-hmm. but it's not um, because you just get that snippet. Or you listen to like the the, the Crow soundtrack, um, which was very much a you know a heavy metal kind of a, it was very much a product of that era. You got Nine Inch Nails and and some of these other just you know the Cure. Uh, Joy Division. It's a really fantastic soundtrack for a specific time and place. Mm-hmm. And yet that music really fits with, you know, this idea of, of you know, someone who has come back uh, from the dead, who's, who's, who's on a, you know, who's out to avenge the loss of a loved one, who's got the, it's a, there's a grittiness to the story that this music really lends itself to. Even if you're not a fan of this particular kind of music, it actually holds up really well in terms of when you're watching it in the film because it's chosen so well. And then you can still listen to the soundtrack and it'd be enjoyable as a album of a bunch of different artists who their music is related, but to be fair, Nine Inch Nails and The Cure are (laughs) very different kinds of music. They, that, you, superficially, they can sound similar, yeah, uh, but they're really not that similar. That's one of the things I, Mindy and I, every now and again, when we're listening, there's a, a radio station here, um, 101 The Fox. It's the classic mm-hmm. rock. Sure. And every now and again, there will be a band they play that is absolutely not classic rock. Right. And I cannot, for the life of me, tell you any of them. Um, is sound is Soundgarden in that group? I don't know. I don't know if Mindy is still in the chat. She can say because every now and then I'll hear one and thinking, that's not classic rock. So the problem is, Jason, is that classic rock 
is a movable target. No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, okay, no. hold on, hold on, hold on. You and I are of an age yeah. where classical rock means this time period, this specific time period. Right. Unfortunately, fortunately, it's, it's better. Time marches on. And well, as time marches on, the window of what is classical mm. becomes broader because Except, classical music well no i'm i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to argue that point because classical music if you look at class the classical era it's a very specific time period because you have you have classical era you have baroque period you have, you know all of these different things classic rock goes from late 50s early 60s and i think a lot of people a lot of people would say you know the beatles because old rock and roll bill haley and the comets elvis presley those are those are considered oldies right classic rock started with you know about the time early you know beatles rolling stone you know with the british invasion the who and that one and it goes up through about the mid-70s because then you start getting into disco, right? Disco is a, is a delineation. It is a demarcation point. A line in the sand, damn it. <laughs> it is, because after disco, then you have the pop rock and the alternate rock and the grunge rock and the metal grunge, and all hair that. hair metal and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Well, and no. and it's like it's like she's saying here, you know, Nir, I think Nirvana is probably the one that's most irritating for me to hear on classic rock. I mean, Metallica kind of skates the edge in terms mm, of no time period. But well, yeah, it kind of doesn't. But you have that that block of time that's classic rock. And you know, movie scores are the same kind of way because you get something like FM, for example. You know, that, that movie, and it has, like you are talking about, you've got a bunch of different songs that become the score, become the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It's not really a film score. And, you know, your first Batman movie, you had sure. the Prince album that came out. And I don't know if you remember or not, but there was quite a bit of hue and cry over the, of the, the fact that they were not going to do a film score album. Here's the Prince album, and that's all we're doing. And I remember at the time, there was quite a bit of pushback. Where's the Danny Elfman score? Batman 89 broke a lot of people. You think <laughs> it's bad now on the internet, folks. You, If you are not old enough to remember but the Batman 89 trauma, you would you, you took that and the everything all the the who and cry leading up to the next generation mm. and you and you like yeah okay kids you you didn't you have instant gratification with the internet we had to sit in home and wait <laughs> for this to come traumatize us well because... see the thing about it is though i mean yeah you had a lot of noise being made about michael keaton playing batman but nobody really knew anything much about what was going to happen with the music score or the design right. or thing until until the movie hit, and then all of a sudden it was just like, 
you know, well, it was a combination of two things. You had a score which really did fit the film extremely well, yeah, and it yeah. was an iconic sound for Batman. It's something that that stuck, right? And that, but you also had some really well chosen, you know, Prince songs. Well, he did that specifically for the movie, didn't he? That accent, the yeah, movie, that whole thing, and so it ends up being this wonderful combination. I mean, in many ways. Um, you know, the you look at something like that and then you look at something like Highlander or Flash Gordon and it's the same kind of thing mm-hmm. where you hear those songs and you hear the Batman movie. Yeah. And and that's that's really kind of impressive when you think about it. I mean, when you consider that, um, you know, it's one thing to listen to the Jaws theme or the Halloween theme or the Star Wars theme or the Thing theme and have that kind of reaction because they're orchestral scores. They're put, and, and, and they hit at certain parts of the movie, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're used as that, you know, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you feel what I want you to feel by giving you this music piece. Pop music, a song with lyrics, doesn't always have that impact. It can accentuate something. It can evoke something. It can make you think of that specific scene in the film, but there not there's isn't aren't that many soundtracks. I mean, there's a lot of really great soundtracks out there that use pop music and 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 song based things. But you get into something like you know um, that Batman soundtrack, um, uh, you know, Flash Gordon. These are things that you hear just one song from that, and you're like, oh yeah. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, it, it sticks. Yeah, Christopher in the in the chat says, "I feel the Train Spotting soundtrack is in a similar league with the Crow." It is. Yeah, that's really the, capturing that's, a time yeah, and right. place that accents the film. Well, and you talk about the impact that Danny Elfman's score had with the with the Batman theme. It carries over so much that he did the theme to the Flash TV series mm-hmm. on the CBS. He ended up doing Dick Tracy. And they right. all and you want to talk about somebody whose scores all sound the same, Danny Elfman. I mean, for all that he's had an impact and an influence, there is there are very rare occasions when you don't recognize a Danny Elfman theme. Philip Glass is the same way yeah. for me, and I really like Philip Glass a lot of times. Uh, his Candyman score is the the original ninety two one. Um, is really good. And, uh, you know, there's an example of a horror film that has held up over time, even though it's from the early 90s. It's very much a time and a place. Uh, Cabrini Green does not exist like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very much a, uh, a film that that score works extremely well. Um, and I think that, but Philip Glass, it's like, oh, yes. I know, I know that sound. It's well, okay. and, it's not and a bad thing necessarily. You go into the later Batman scores, and you know they don't have that kind of resonance. I don't think as much. But you also look at the Batman animated, mm-hmm. where Shirley Walker bringing in some of Danny Elfman's stuff and reworking it and doing things. Sure. I remember seeing a, a documentary, a behind-the-scenes on the making of that series, how it's how it all came together to start with. And 
Bruce Tim is talking about uh, the music score, and they were stunned uh, with this idea that they had an orchestra for an animated series. Right. And this, you know, just completely blown away by all of the production. But the production value of this show was such, you could probably go back and do live action versions of all of those episodes and it would still hold up. Mm -hmm. Probably just as well. And then you get, you know, the... That legacy, you know, from Elfman to Shirley Walker, and now you've got Michael McQuiston and Lolita Rintmanis and uh, and Christopher uh, Chris Carter, um, who I went to school with, by the way. Full disclosure, um, you know, they're doing scores for a lot of the animated shows that are out there now. So it's one of those things where you know things, the one the the scores that have an impact generally tend to carry over and have influence in other things down the line. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned certain, certain songs having an impact and being recognized. You know, you look mm. at Huey Lewis, for example, you know, the power of love from back to the future, uh, or back in time, which is at the end of that movie, you know, and I, I want a new drug, which is end up being the ghostbusters theme. <laughs> you know, I- I, be, I believe there was is that is that lawsuit then actually I okay. think that I think they settled <laughs> that yeah but yeah it music has a, a tendency to really underscore if it's done right mm-hmm. it underscores both the emotion of a scene and also has a tendency to bring the audience along with a particular character or not. You know, because you're understanding the tone, you've got tone, but you also have specific, th- if, it's, if, if the character has his own theme, you know, like, like the, the force theme or for, mm-hmm. for uh, Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader, the Imperial March and all of that. Sure. Or, or, or listening to, uh, you know, anytime, Anytime you hear the theme to Halloween, mm-hmm. you're not thinking of the victims. You're thinking of Michael Myers. Right. It's, 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 or, or you listen to Tubular Bells. The song Tubular Bells was not written for The Omen. I'm sorry, The Exorcist. It was not written for The Exorcist. <laughs> um, but if you've ever seen The Exorcist, and you hear tubular bells, yeah. your first thought is not that it was a song that was written for something else. And no, you would think of The Exorcist because it's become so tied into that concept of, of, of that very evocative and, and for its time, incredibly powerful, um, you know, horror film. Um, some of this stuff gets stuck and and in a good way, yeah. To to the mood and the tone and the character, in a way that, you know, which is which is what you want actually. Yeah. You know, if you if you hear the strains to Jurassic Park, um, 
the scene that you think of, or at least the scene that I always think of, is the it's a dinosaur. The reveal, yeah. That that first scene on the hill where right, and that it, because yeah. that scene has that you know it that was the that was the the gut punch first real gut punch moment of the movie mm-hmm. when they sat there and went, look what we have done, <laughs> and you said, that's a dinosaur. Yeah, you, you did it. You, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's got that kind of power to it, and and well, and I think. There are there are certain film scores. You talk about the Halloween, you know, the the that five four bar, you know, bit on the piano. Uh, but you know, John Williams' Superman theme being another one where no matter who's playing Superman, you hear that music and you immediately think of Christopher Reeve in that part because that's Superman. And you have those those moments, those those signature, <coughs> excuse me, those signature musical pieces that not only have the emotional impact of whatever it is that you're you're experiencing in the film, but they are so closely tied to a particular character or movie you know raiders of the lost ark you know that the 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 raiders march you're always going to see harrison ford as indiana jones when you hear that music you're not going to think about anybody else you're not going to think about chris pratt if they recast you're not going to think about tom Selleck or or anybody it's it's harrison ford as indiana jones i know but i'm i'm saying I, I'm just saying, they're not going to recast. Christopher says, what are your thoughts about the two different scores for Legend, Tangerine Dream versus Goldsmith? Uh, uh, Legend, uh, is that the with Tim Curry as the devil? Right. That one. Um, I'm always going to, okay. And I, I don't know, people might disagree with me on this. I'm always going to fall on the Tangerine Dream side for this <laughs> because they, they do something with their film scores, which I find just really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. They are... And maybe it's the experimental aspect of it. Maybe right. it's the fact that they're they're exploring um, kind of things. It's like it's like Vangelis, right? So it's like when you you hear it, it's something you're not used to hearing for the score. And I think that that's again from going back to to Ravenous, you don't expect what you get, and then you have this, and yet by the time you're done, it, it it's kind of wired in, and and I feel that way a lot about Tangerine Dream when they're making movie scores, mm-hmm. um, because by the time it's done, that's what's stuck in my head is what they've done with it, yeah. and nothing wrong with Goldsmith. I mean, not obviously, but I think that that's one of the things that Tangerine Dream can do really, really well for a score, and. Um, I remember when Star Trek Four came out. <clears throat> I was in college, and we uh, we had uh, a college radio station. And during the day, we played jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the at, in the evening, it was top forty, because you know it's a student station. You want to learn different formats. So we had jazz during the day, top sure. forty at night. And I remember. 
we had an album in there from the Yellow Jackets. And on that album was a, the whale song from Star Trek Four, and Market Street, which was the the jazzy piece when they first hit San Francisco, mm-hmm. and you know Kirk almost gets run over by a cab, and they're trying to figure out about money, and you know, that that jazzy piece that's there, those two tracks are on a Yellow Jackets album, and I might have played it a little bit too much. But it's one of those, <laughs> but it, but it hits me you know, like up until that point with Star Trek Four, for example, you don't get the, you don't get the opportunity to mix in things like you would like, you know, Prince and Danny Elfman or Queen and, right, and you know, sure. whatever. You don't get to put in popular music. And mm-hmm. Star Trek Four was a, a chance to do that. I was like, oh, the Yellow Jackets in this, wait a minute. This one's co-written by Leonard Rosenman. What is it? Hang on. I'm playing this on my next shift. You know, it's that, that sort of thing. So it's always, it's always fun when you have those things. And of course, this is, this is a, a film like Legend. This is the time when MTV still played music videos. <laughs> so one of the things that you ended up with was Brian Ferry singing Is Your Love Strong Enough? Brian Ferry from Roxy Music. Mm. Uh, and... And if you're not familiar with Brian Ferry and Roxy Music, I'm I'm sorry. You should go get familiar with Brian Ferry and Roxy Music. But the uh, "Is Your Love If Your Is Your Love Strong Enough" was one of the songs on the out version with Tangerine Dream. And the music video for that, you know, there's there was there was a time, there was a time <laughs> when MTV played music videos. I know. This yeah. is a shocking thing to hear, but you would get these sort of, uh, uh, and they were essentially ads for the movie. And of course, obviously, we get music videos, you know, tra- you know, so- movie video song things on YouTube and places like that, obviously. But at the time, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have, you know, the internet. So this was the kind of stuff that you had to get. And this is, it was, it was a really fantastic marketing tool if you're yeah. going to promote your film. There were a lot of films with great music videos that were not good movies. Uh, and you know, but, uh, so yeah, that, you know, like I said, the tangerine dream one is, is always just going to have a place in, in my heart. I, I get that, you know, it's not the director's cut music. That's all right. Directors, director, you know, I, 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 Ridley Scott is great. If he could just pick a version of the film he likes. Yeah. No kidding. I would still like to hear. I, I I may investigate this a little bit. I'm still curious whether or not James Horner ever recorded anything for Aliens. Yeah, that, that'd, that'd be interesting to... I, I think that would be... I may I have to look into I'm, that. I'm guessing not because of the amount of time, but maybe. Yeah. Hey, All you right. know, we got, we, got, we got Alien 3. Oh, we got Gibson's Alien 3 in, in book, comic, and audio. Well, and we got, the, we got the Star Wars over at Dark Horse, right? you know, doing right. one of the mm-hmm. early drafts of, of the script. So at City on the Edge of Forever, we got right. Harlan Ellison's original script in a comic book. So surely you never know. You never know. Maybe. Well, um, Vares Saraband just re-released the the orchestral Empire Strikes Back album that has not seen print for for, 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 for years, couple of three years, yeah. yeah. 
and it's still got the original liner notes and all the other stuff, the, the, the original packaging, and it's on vinyl. We're back to vinyl. Of course, I want to see the alternate universe version of the film where Richard O'Brien was going to be in Legend. Riff Raff. So you, you, have, you have Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. But there was a time when they were considering having Riff Raff in there too. And I'm like, This is the same universe where, uh, uh, what's his name, still plays Marty, uh, Marty McFly. Uh, no, no, no. Eric that, that universe, that universe wasn't funny enough. This would have been <laughs> odd. And considering that we got, we never got. There's technically a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. But Richard O'Brien is like, it's terrible. Don't watch it. So, and he made it. So he he just like you to know. <laughs> you know, you know who would make an interesting devil, and this is just off the cuff. Right? I'm just coming up with this right off, just with no no uh, prep at all. I think it would be interesting to see Bill Murray play the devil, just because sure. that that I'd deadpan... like to see Patrick Stewart play the devil. Maybe. Because he can do a villain really, really well. We tend to think of him as the hero because, of course, he has yeah. iconic roles. But um, was it the Green Room? Green Room, where he plays a, 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 a neo-Nazi? He's terrifying. Yeah. So get him as the devil. Oh, yeah. I, I think that would be... Or, of course... Then, you, then you'd want to have a, a, another film where Ian McKellen played the devil and you could have them fight it out through... Bill, Murray, Bill Murray reading the screw tape letters. <laughs> you know what? That would be a lot of fun. I, I would pay to see that. All right, on that note, we are, we are past our hour. It's, it's, uh, this has been a very good conversation. I appreciate everybody being in the chat. Mazurus, oh, Christopher, uh, Robert, Geekosity... Uh, who else did I see in there? I saw Mindy. Sci-Fi Snob was in there for a little bit. Mazerus, hope you get to feeling better soon. Yes. Um, yes, definitely. And uh, we will be back next week to talk about something. We know not what. Things and stuff. Things we always talk stuff. about things and stuff. Tomorrow, live from the bunker, I'm going to go into the AT&T stuff. I'm hoping to have guests so we can do kind of a panel discussion because, you know, me just sitting here ranting for an hour is going to be boring. And then uh, uh, you might be interested in this, Tim. Katie, what's her name? Katie Nicolau. Uh, I don't know if you'll recall this or not. We had a story on Good Morning Multiverse a number of months ago about this young lady who's a meteorologist who does the forecast every now and again in cosplay. Do you remember that? I remember that. She's up in uh, Minnesota, I think. So extra layer of warmth in the yeah, cold time. So she's going to be our guest on Wednesday. So uh, that'll That's be cool. And then you guys have. We've got a tartar sauce tartar on sauce Thursday or well, uh, no well, tartar sauce. It'll come out this weekend. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. I'm, I'm a little, there's been a lot of less than great news coming out. Mm. Um, from involving certain stars of, the show over time. Yeah. 
um, from the new from the, from the new series or revived series uh, that has been making a lot of not great headlines. And I'm part of me says we should talk about it. Part of me says the second issue of the Missy comic is out, and I'd much rather talk about that than. Well, I would. I we could we could talk about this off air, but I think we. I think the the thing with uh, with what's his name is probably going to be around for a while. So, oh, I know you can I certainly know. And it's, it's un- circle back to it later. It's unfortunate. You know, I mean, it's the sad the sad fact of the matter is is that you can enjoy people performing, uh, and that doesn't make them great people. Um, but uh, you just you just you want you want the people who are in the shows you like to be nice. Yep. Yep. It doesn't always work that way. No, it doesn't. So anyway, all right. So that is, uh, that is that. So tartar sauce. No, that's the wrong one. That, why did that show up? All right. So tartar sauce Saturday at 1 PM Eastern and then, uh, live from the bunker 1 PM Eastern all through this week to Thursday. And then we'll be back here again next week to do this again. (sighs) And we'll figure out what we're going to talk about, and, and and we'll post it on our socials when we get all that figured out. You can see that all up here, all of the different channels where you can find us, and we will be back next week. Thanks for being here, everyone. Go listen to great music. Yes. And tell us what you hear. Send yeah. us an email. Leave us a comment. Uh, share your Definitely. Thoughts. All right. Let Good night, what everyone. your favorite scores are. All right. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.